Hey there, this is Jen Wade, part of the core team here at Springs Church. We just want to say thank you so much for joining us and listening to our podcast. We are praying that it encourages you and it inspires you. And if you'd like to find out more about Springs Church, please visit our website, springschurch.co.uk. Here's today's message. I've called this message, It's Not Fair. It's Not Fair. And I reckon that for everybody who is a parent in the room today, at some stage, particularly if you've got more than one kid, you will have heard the words, It's Not Fair. When I was growing up, I, well, I still have a younger sister. Uh, she is, well, she was really, really annoying. She was three years younger than me. She isn't annoying anymore. Well, not most of the time anyway. But as I was growing up, these words were kind of constantly ringing in my ears. It's not fair. He's got more than me. Why do I have to go to bed before him? Um, why does he have more pocket money than me? Why can he go out and I've got to stay in? It's not fair. Now, obviously, what my sister had to learn was the fact that I'm a boy and therefore I'm entitled. No, no, that's not true. (laughs) No. (laughs) But my, my parents always did bring us up to, to be know that we were loved equally and treated fairly as far as they could. I'm sure that many of you actually practice the same things, but, but the two things that I clearly remember about my, my mum and dad's rules were um, that, that fizzy pop was actually quite a treat as we were growing up. There wasn't as much of it about. And we used to, we used to have the pop man that came once a week, and that was, you know, we'd have a couple of bottles to last us for the week. And we used to really like this, this apple, fizzy apple drink. And um, what we used to do was have to share it, you see. So mum and dad had got this simple rule one pours the drinks and the other chooses the glass. Or if you've got a share a Mars bar or something like that, one cuts and the other chooses which piece they want. Now that is the way to guarantee that you get a Mars bar absolutely cut 50-50 down the middle. Or you get a bottle of pop to the kind of milliliter that's poured out. I can guarantee it, it worked perfectly. But mum and dad always kind of brought us up to believe that we were being treated fairly. But as we actually grow up, we begin to realize that life isn't always fair. Life's not fair, is it? In Life Group this week, we were um, talking and reviewing uh, last week's uh, message that Pete brought about Peter and John encountering a a beggar on the way to the temple. And this beggar was, was lame from birth. And we had a really interesting conversation in our Life Group Uh, about uh, homelessness uh, and the conversation, as conversations in life groups sometimes do tend to to drift a little bit, we we somehow got on to, you know, our experiences of meeting people in the street and some of our concerns. And and some people, understandably, were saying, well, you know, I'd like to do something, but I'm a bit worried about just giving money and I'm always concerned... uh, uh, are these people really genuine? You know, you hear of people on the streets that have got mansions in the, in the background. Uh, or, or then you kind of get concerned about, are they actually being 
exploited. And even in that story of Peter and John, he actually said that, th that the beggar was brought there by somebody. You know, was that beggar actually being exploited? And we actually came to the conclusion, I believe, that, that basically life isn't fair. There but for the grace of God goes us. And actually, we should just do what Jesus would do, which is undoubtedly to love unconditionally. But life wasn't fair to start with for that beggar that we were talking about last week. So what I propose to do today is we're going to look at two stories in the Bible where people said it's not fair. Okay? Uh, both of these are quite surprising stories and I think that they actually point us to a point where we would say it's good that life isn't always fair. We might get to a point where we actually think it's perhaps good that life isn't always fair. And in particular, we should be really glad that God doesn't actually treat us fairly because actually he treats us much more than fairly. Okay, so let's see how we get on. The first one is a, uh, a parable, a story of Jesus. Uh, I'm going to read this. The words will appear on the screen. If you can see them, I will read it to you. This is the the passion version of the story of the laborers in the vineyard. And I do apologize, the fonts, the colors, it's all going to look a right mishmash behind me. But there are reasons for that which we won't go into now. So if you, you know, some are in capital letters, some are in lowercase, just try and listen to the story and pay no attention to the, uh, the way it appears behind me. So this is, this is the story from the passion version that Jesus told. So these are the words of Jesus. Jesus said, to his disciples, this will help you understand the way heaven's kingdom operates. There once was a wealthy landowner who went out at daybreak to hire all the laborers he could find to work in his vineyard. After agreeing to pay them the standard day's wage, he put them to work. Then at nine o'clock, as he was passing through the town square, he found others standing around without work. He told them, come and work for me in my vineyard and I'll pay you a fair wage. So off they went to join the others. He did the same thing at noon, and then again at three o'clock, making the same arrangements as he did with the others. Hoping to finish his harvest that day, he went to the town square once again at five o'clock and found more there who were idle. And he said to them, why have you been here all day without work? Because no one hired us, they answered. So he said to them, then go and join my crew and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard went to his foreman and said, call in all the laborers, line them up, and pay them the same wages, starting with the most recent ones I hired and finishing with the ones who worked all day. When those, who, uh, those hired late in the day came to be paid, they were given a full day's wage. And when those who had been hired first came to be paid, they were convinced that they would receive more but everyone was paid the standard wage. When they realized what had happened, they were offended and complained to the landowner, saying, you're treating us unfairly. It's not fair. They've only worked for one hour while we've slaved and sweated all day under the scorching sun. You've made them equal to us. The landowner replied, friends, I'm not being unfair. I'm doing exactly what I said. Didn't you agree to work for the standard wage? If I want to give those who have only worked for one hour pay, equal pay, what does that matter to you? Don't I have the right 
to do what I want with what is mine? Why should my generosity make you jealous of them? Now you can understand what I mean when I say that the first will be last and the last will end up being first. Everyone is invited, but few are chosen. That's a story that Jesus told to explain kingdom values. And it's a bit of an odd story. I don't know how you feel about it. Let me ask you honestly. In the story, who do you relate to? Out of the laborers, who do you relate to? Now, apparently, most people who are Christians relate to the people who are hired first in the story, especially if they've been Christians quite a long time. People that kind of say, you know, I've been a Christian since the day I was born. You know, my mom and dad were Christians. I went to Sunday school. I've served in the church. I've lived my whole life in the church. People like that often relate to the first group of people in the story, the ones that worked the full day. But perhaps the story isn't talking about that at all. Some commentators believe that the story is actually Jesus explaining to the the Jewish people of his own, uh, of his own race and, and people uh, that we call Gentiles, people who are non-Jewish, that actually the Gentiles would be offered the gospel because the Jewish people rejected it. Now, whatever your interpretation of the story is, it's quite odd. In this day and age, you couldn't really imagine it happening, that, that somebody that's labored all day being paid exactly the same as someone who's just in an hour's work at the back end of the day. But I want to suggest to you that we should all relate to the, the Johnny-come-latelys, the people that turned up right at the back end of the day. That actually is the category where we should consider ourselves to be. Forget how long you've been a Christian. Forget how long you might have been serving God. Forget what you've done in the past but consider yourself as one of these these latecomers, these people that really got a lot, lot more than they actually deserved. You know, they were were rewarded well beyond the labor that they put in. Because Jesus told this story not to talk about fairness, but he told this story to explain a little bit more to us about God's nature, and in particular, God's grace and God's mercy. So, very quickly, because there's another story for us to look at, what do you think we can learn from this story? Well, I've thought of a few things, and I'm sure other things may have come to you as we read the story. I'm just going to rattle these off fairly quickly, just so we can keep moving. What do I think we can get out of this story? Well, the first thing I want us to remember is this. God dispenses gifts, not wages. Okay? Whatever you get as a Christian is not a reward For hard work, every blessing we have is a gift from God and it has nothing to do with our nature. It has nothing to do with what we've achieved for God. It is completely from God's generosity. God never pays wages. He just dispenses gifts. God may not reward us in the way we expect. Very often, I think most of us who have been Christians a little while would actually say, that God's generosity to us is far, far more than we would expect. I'm glad life's not fair, 
because God's given me far more than my fair share. And I think loads of people would relate to that. We can also learn that God deals with us according to who he is and not in respect of what we've done. It's down to God, okay? This is a really important point. You need to hear this, folks, particularly if you're not quite certain whether or not you're a Christian. I can't repeat this often enough. You cannot work your way into heaven. You cannot work your way into heaven. When you die, it is not a matter of all of the good things you've done and all of the bad things you've done being put on a pair of balancing scales. You can't earn your way into heaven. It's not about the good works you've done. It's not about whether you've thought naughty thoughts. It's not about whether you've done naughty things. It's none of that type of stuff. The way that you get into heaven is simply by putting your faith and your trust in the person of Jesus Christ. You can't work your way into heaven, but let me tell you, friends, if you're a follower of Jesus, that's where you're headed. That is the reward for all of us. And then perhaps the last point quickly that I think we can get from this story is this. We mustn't ever compare ourselves to others. It will only ever produce envy and jealousy. I say this to people who have been in church a long time. You know, we look around and we see other people with ministries and we see other people with gifts. Are we looking around and thinking, God's blessed someone there who's not as deserving as me? It's so easy to think that. It's so easy to compare yourself and think, I couldn't stand up and preach like John or Peter. I couldn't stand up and sing or I, I couldn't serve at Hope House. I couldn't do this. That's not the way it's meant to be. We must never, ever compare ourselves to other others. It will just make us feel down. It's not the way God wants us to be. God blesses each of us as he sees fit and we should all accept it. There's a, a verse in the scriptures, I think if, if we can get this one up for me, Darren, just to, to round this bit up. Th this verse I just came across from Hebrews chapter 4.16 as, um, as I was just preparing today. It's one that we have spoken about in the past, but from a different point of view here. Hebrews 6.14 says this, Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Grace is receiving a gift you don't deserve. Mercy is not receiving the punishment you do deserve. That's the difference between grace and mercy. That little verse there from Hebrews says, we receive mercy, free gift of God. We find grace, perhaps as we live our Christian lives, we need to look and see the grace of God more often in our lives. Okay, so that's the first story about unfairness. And uh, the second story that we're going to, uh, to read is actually probably um, almost my favorite Bible story. Uh, it's only a few verses, uh, but I do really just love this, uh, this story of Mary and Martha. So I'm going to read this to you, and then we're just going to look at this and wrap things up today. But these, this is also a situation where... Something happened that wasn't necessarily fair. I'm going to read this from a, a more traditional version. This is from the New, King's James, New King James Version. Okay. Now, it happened, this isn't a 
parable, by the way. This is actually a kind of true story. The story of the laborers was a, a story that Jesus made up, if you like, to teach from. This is actually a, an event that actually happened. Now, it happened as they went there that he entered a certain village. That's Jesus entered a certain village. And a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen that good part which will not be taken away from her. As I say, one of my, my favorite stories about this, this family that we read about in the Bible, Mary and Martha were sisters of Lazarus, who uh, uh, Jesus raised from the dead. Um, they were very uh, close. Probably, uh, when we read the stories of Jesus, they, these were probably the people we read about who were the closest buddies of Jesus, other than his, his 12 uh, apostles, the 12 followers of Jesus. They were close family friends. Sisters of Lazarus, and they lived in a place called Bethany, which was just a couple of miles away from Jerusalem. So I would imagine that Jesus went to their house quite regularly. You know, he was out working in the week, and I'd imagine he'd go there for Sunday lunch with them. You know, he'd hang out with them. They knew him well. Uh, but this story is at a time when Jesus' uh, ministry was really popular, and there were thousands of people following him around. It was probably, I mean, Bethany itself, you know, kind of it's, it's the name of a, a place of peace and rest. And uh, I would imagine that this place was a bit of a respite for Jesus, a, you know, a bolt hole that he could go to, a place where he could be himself and hang out with his, his closest friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. So we read this story that Jesus was coming. Now, if you've got people coming to your home, particularly for something to eat, you know, there's quite a lot of work to do, isn't it? Our house is never cleaner than when we've got people coming to, to visit us. I don't know why, but that's just the case. You know, we've got to clean rooms that are never going to go into. We've got to make sure that the upstairs toilet's clean, even though they're ever going to use the downstairs toilet. It doesn't matter. The house has got to be immaculate. We've got to get the house ready. You've got to get the food ready. And... Some people just have that kind of real lovely gift of generous hospitality and welcome you into the home. For other people, it's, it's actually harder work. People, some people find it quite stressful to have strangers into their house. Uh, and, um, you know, it is a genuine gift to have the gift of hospitality. So we can just imagine these two sisters getting the house ready, getting the food ready. Jesus is coming. From what we read, it appears that there were probably other visitors as well. So it's quite a big party that they had going on. And then Jesus turns up, starts talking, sharing, preaching, ministering, telling parables, talking about the football. I don't know. But he's there hanging out in the house. And Mary decides she wants to hang out with her best buddy. She's going to hang out. And she chooses to sit at Jesus' feet. Now, it's quite significant that it was at the feet of Jesus because in those days, when the rabbis taught, the followers would normally sit at their feet. Paul actually in one of his letters says, 
that he was brought up at the feet of Gamaliel, which means that Paul was trained by this rabbi called Gamaliel, and he actually physically sat at, at this Gamaliel's feet. So it was a place of significance to be at Jesus' feet, a very special place, a place of privilege as well. But when you look at this verse, can we just go back a slide, please, Daz? If you look at this verse, these verses, you will actually see that it doesn't say that Mary hadn't done anything. It doesn't say that Martha had been slaving away for days on end, getting the house ready, and Mary had just been swanning about doing nothing. It actually says that Mary also sat at Jesus' feet. I think we can pretty much read that to say that Mary had almost certainly been involved in all the preparations, but when Jesus came, she chose to sit at Jesus' feet. Martha, on the other hand, it says very clearly, and this is a key word in the story, Martha was distracted. That's a key word. Martha was distracted with much serving. I'd like to suggest to you that much serving possibly means over-the-top serving. Now, I've got a great personal experience of this growing up. My mom, my mom was a total Martha-spirited lady. She was, she loved having people around. She loved looking after people. But mom could never, ever stop fussing when people came. And in fact, we'd be sitting there, and instead of just hanging out with her family and her friends, she was constantly up and down on, on her feet. Can I get you this? Do you want this? And actually, I would genuinely say that my mom was so over the top with her fussing that it could sometimes be a bit off-putting, that people felt a little bit uncomfortable because instead of just hanging out together, it actually got to the stage where mom was constantly trying to give people things, do things for them. It was just in her nature, in a way. But Martha was distracted. Working hard for Jesus wasn't the problem at all. The problem was that Martha had become distracted by it. And that can apply so much to us in the church. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but, but some people can actually become quite crabby and irritable when they're serving Jesus. I remember many, many years ago, um, we, we did a project in Dudley called The Filling Station. And uh, a local guy, who many of you will know, so I won't name him, came up with the idea and the vision and um, he, he had this idea that we would open this, this cafe and Bible bookshop in, in Dudley, which, which we did. And we found this old kind of warehouse area, and it really needed doing up, just like Hope House needed doing up more recently. And I can remember being on part of the working party, kind of getting this place ready. And we kind of looked around, and we realized the guy whose idea it was, who had the vision, who'd got us all together, who'd raised the funding was nowhere to be seen. And people started bad-mouthing him. That's typical of him. He's always off to the next thing. You know, this is supposed to be a such-and-such such project, and I don't know, we're the ones doing all the work. As I've got more mature and older, I actually realized that, that that person in question, his role was visionary. His role was to kind of start a fire and move on. But instead of actually working at the filling station and being joyful about it, we all were really crabby and irritable. We felt hard put upon, if I'm honest. 
And it's very easy to criticize other people who you don't think are doing as much work as they should. It's as if Martha's spirit was saying to her, the work in itself is enough. I, I've got this job to do, and I'm going to do this job, and, and that it's all about this job that I've got to do. Where Martha's spirit, it seems to me, is more about asking, is Jesus actually pleased with this? I'm doing this, but is Jesus pleased with it? Or am I just doing it because it's something I feel I ought to be doing? It's, it's a difficult one, but when we're involved in church, it's so easy to be distracted away from Jesus and to be looking at the stuff we're doing rather than to be looking at the master. It's so easy. Can we just flip back to the next slide, guys? So, I love Jesus' response. I just love the fact that it says here, Jesus said, Martha, Martha. He said a name twice. When you hear that, can you, can you hear the love in Jesus' voice for Martha? Can you feel the compassion and the understanding and the fact that she was one of his best buddies and, and he loved her intensely? But it was Martha, oh, Martha, the love that Jesus had for her. And he actually said to her, as we just read, he's so worried and troubled about many things. You've got the weight of the world on your shoulders. You're rushing around. You can't settle. You're anxious about this. You're worried about so many things. And Jesus says, but actually, only one thing is needed. Only one thing is needed. Now, I've done a little bit of research, and in the Bible, there are at least three times when the Bible talks about one thing. So, there's three lots of one things. Now, that doesn't mean there are three things, but there's three lots of one thing, okay? I'll read this to you. In the Psalms, in Psalm 27, and you might actually Google and find some others, but these are the three I came across. In Psalm 27, verse 4, it says this, the psalm writer, I think it was David, says, One thing have I desired of the Lord that I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. So David said, one thing I want to do is to dwell in the house of the Lord. Story from Jesus in Luke chapter 18, verse 22. We read these words. Jesus was talking to somebody, and he said, when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Come and follow me. So the one thing in the Old Testament was dwelling in the house of the Lord. The one thing that Jesus said is, come follow me. And then St. Paul in Philippians 3, 13 and 14 says this. Paul writes, brothers, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do. So Paul is saying, there's only one thing I'm really got to be involved in, one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind me and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. So Paul is saying the one thing for him is pressing forward to the goal. Now, I believe that those three one things can actually all be merged together into one massive big one thing, okay? So the one thing that Jesus was really talking about when Mary was sitting at his feet, and he's saying only one thing is required, is this, dwell in the house of the Lord. 
follow me and press on to the goal. Does that make sense that those three individual things can be linked? You don't dwell in the house of the Lord and do nothing else. You don't just follow Jesus but blindly and, and you don't just look ahead and, and ignore everything else but you do the three one things together. And Jesus is saying to, to, to Martha, be like Mary and concentrate on the one thing. I'm going to bring this into land now. Uh, I could talk about this story. I just love this story. This so keeps on giving, I think. But anyway, let's just begin to wrap this up and see what is the real core about this. Is life fair? Martha's problem was not unfairness. It wasn't that life wasn't treating her fairly. Martha's problem wasn't even a sister Mary. That wasn't the real problem. Martha's problem was that she'd taken her eyes off Jesus. She'd stopped focusing on Jesus. So I want to ask you today a question for everybody, but I actually want to say, especially if you're involved in leadership in the church or in serving in the church, and that's a lot of people, a lot of people serve in Springs Church, which is fantastic. But for all of us, if you're involved in church life, if you're involved in leading, if you're involved in serving, are you spending time at the feet of Jesus? Are you spending time with him as well as all of the other stuff that you might be doing? For those of us that perhaps have a calling and a feel about the area and that we're longing to see transformation in our community, if we're longing to see more unity in our community, if we're longing to see revival in our community, it's actually the same question. Are we spending time at the feet of Jesus. Because that is the sweet spot. That's what it's all about. That's what being a Christian is about in many, many ways, spending time at the feet of Jesus. Because if you sit at the feet of Jesus, it means that you accept him, you accept his teaching. It means that you obey him, that you're prepared to do what he says. If you sit at the feet of Jesus, it means that you're going to be in submission to him, that he will be your Lord and that you will follow him. If you sit at his feet, it means that you have faith in him, that he will actually save you to the uttermost, that what he did on the cross is enough to save you completely. If you sit at the feet of Jesus, you're saying, I want to be your follower. I want to be your disciple. That's what it means to sit at the feet of Jesus. But sitting at the feet of Jesus is a special place as well. Sitting at the feet of Jesus is the place where you will find peace in your life. Sitting at the feet of Jesus is where you find true holiness in your life. Sitting at the feet of Jesus will be what gives strength to your faith. And as a result of that strength, you'll find joy in your life despite the circumstances that you're going through. The feet of Jesus is a joyful place. Sitting at the feet of Jesus, when you let his spirit waft over you, is where all of a sudden you become endued with wisdom and discernment. Sitting at the feet of Jesus is when he'll, he'll ignite passion in your life to serve him more. Sitting at the feet of Jesus is the place where you find true love. It's the best place in the world to be. 
I'm going to ask the band if they can, they can come back now and uh, we're just going to finish off. But in this story, this last story that we've been looking at, it seems to me that there are three types of people that the story talks about. The first group are people like Mary. They know how to serve, but they actually also sit at the feet of Jesus. That's the category we want to be in. The second category of people are people like Martha. They're people who serve diligently. They're people with the very best intentions. They're people that love God, but somehow they get distracted from spending time with Jesus. And I'm talking to myself as much as anybody else. I know how easy it is to be busy, busy, busy and not spend enough time with Jesus. And then there's perhaps a third group of people, people that aren't like Mary or Martha at all, people that aren't even in the house, people that aren't actually even that bothered about him. They're too busy with their own pursuits, doing their own thing. They're so wrapped up in their own lives that they haven't got time for Jesus. And perhaps today you're in that category and you've heard about Jesus a little bit and you actually think, well, hanging out with Jesus seems like a good thing to do. Becoming a follower of Jesus is a good thing to do. Becoming a disciple, putting my trust in Jesus, knowing that my sins are forgiven because of what he did on the cross is the best place to be. As we worship now, I want us to imagine that we're all sitting at the feet of Jesus as we worship. And I want you to respond to him in the worship as you should. If you know that you've spent lots of time with him and that you're serving him, just worship him and enjoy his presence. If as I believe possibly quite a few of us will feel, the finger's been pointed a little bit and you think, yeah, I'm really involved. I'm really, really busy as a Christian. But I don't hang out enough with him on my own. Ask him to help you to begin to put that right. Spend some time with him now. And if actually you just think, I'm not really sure I even know him, now is the time that you can just come before his feet and ask him to come into your life for the first time. So we'll just worship. Sam's going to lead us, I think, and Pete. And uh, let's just hang out with Jesus for the next few minutes. Thanks for listening, guys. Thanks again for listening. To hear more of our messages, make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and our podcast channel for past preachers. If you feel like you got something out of today's message, why not share it with your friends and spread the good news of Jesus? We are praying for you. We love you. So please, if you need anything at all, check out springschurch.co.uk. God bless.